So um, I've been watching puppy videos. This is peripheral. I've been watching puppy training videos, getting ready for the puppy. So, um, and they're very, very delightful. But it really made me think, you know, whether our minds are as well-trained as a dog, because I'm not really sure that, uh, that they really obey us when we say drop it or let go or leave it. But these little puppies seem to be able to grasp that. So we can strive for that in our practice. But really what I wanted to talk about today is about relationality. And, um, and I, uh, I've been thinking about, you know, what do we mean when we des describe our practice at Appamata as relational Zen? So after all, the conventional view of Zen practice is pretty much a solitary quest for enlightenment. When we take the precepts, we do vow to live and be lived for all beings. But this is sort of understood as an individual vow. This is what I'm doing. And sitting in stillness and silence, even among others, may give the impression of a kind of meditation that's primarily self-oriented, not much different from solitude, except for the others around us, doing exactly that same still silent meditation. And not that much is said in Zen literature on the subject of Sangha, or spiritual friendship, or connection and care. Monastic life has a kind of appeal going into spiritual solitude that is deep and all-pervasive and quiet. And the simplicity and quiet seem like they would be a kind of welcome respite from our otherwise complex and noisy lives and the expectations and demands of the people in them. So when Flint and I first recognized that our teaching would necessarily focus on relating, we were coming to this realization from our own experience and training. So it's worth talking a little about our background and experience that contributed to this unexpected turn for Zen practice and teaching. We had trained and studied, of course, deeply and wholeheartedly in the traditional Japanese Zen tradition. We had also trained in Hakomi, the assisted self-study in mindfulness, uh, body-centered psychotherapy developed by Ron Kurtz, and in internal family systems developed by Dick Schwartz. Flint had long practiced psychotherapy, often with small groups, his preferred way of working. He had studied attachment theory and many other psychological theories and models. From this background, we understood the professional psychological need and the tremendous influence we have for each other. We are social creatures and we're neurophysiologically wired to relate to each other, to work together, to play together, and to respond to each other's moods and actions. Beyond psychology and neuroscience, however, there's much more to the story. My primary area of research was in complex adaptive systems. In studying complex systems, we focus more on relationships and processes than on individuals. Whether the complex system is neurons in the brain, a classroom of students, a nation's economic system, or a community of practice, such as a Sangha. Such systems adapt to changes in their environments through dense networks or relationships that help the system maintain its coherence and serve many other functions, such as 
transmitting resources, information, and energy throughout the system. In administering large academic departments on campus, I had plenty of opportunity to study not only how smaller systems, such as collaborative writing groups and classrooms, but larger systems of departments, centers, and the university as a whole function. All of these systems are structured and organized around relationships. I did research on collaborative writing and how the relationships among collaborators affect the writing that's created in that way. I studied right use of power to understand how power is organized and managed in complex systems and spiral dynamics to understand how humans and their systems organize their values, which has a profound effect on their relationships. I had learned to view all kinds of situations as ecosystems. So they're composed of um, material environment, uh, social structures, uh, individuals, and all of the means of communication and sharing resources that are part of that system. So, but how do all of these contemporary models and theories relate to Zen? Is this focus on relationships and processes irrelevant? After all, Zen is a very well-established tradition that has lasted a thousand years. So at first, Flint and I thought we were in danger of going off the rails. We had a strong felt sense of our direction, but it might not have aligned with traditional Zen, for which we had very deep respect and abiding devotion. Still, this path we were thinking of as relational Zen just felt too important and we were too energized by it. What should we do? While we were pondering this question, we were finding our way in fostering connection and care in the Sangha through small group experiments and mindfulness, through meeting and inquiry, through informal social gatherings, and through councils and practice discussion groups. Somehow, these opportunities to connect and care for each other were enlivening Zen practice and encouraging people to practice together wholeheartedly. We were fortunate then, very early on, to read Peter Hershock's Liberating Intimacy. And we read this together. Um, it provided an entirely different perspective on the origins of Zen and its traditional form. Hershock explains that in China, where Zen originated as Chan, the culture was organized around relationships, and because of the Confucian influence, those relationships were defined by mutual responsibilities. These responsibilities continued even after death, as there was also an emphasis on ancestors who were woven into daily life. So you would take your fiance out to the, uh, to the cemetery and introduce her to the ancestors and have their approval. So as Buddhist teachings began to be assimilated into the Chinese culture, two important developments were the lineage of ancestors and what Hershok calls the sociality of Zen. The encounter between student and teacher between two masters, between a lay person and a monk, brought the teachings to life with immediacy and directness. These encounters, filled with paradoxical and unexpected turns, began to be recorded and used as resources and teachings. And this is how we get koan collections, but also just in the stories of, uh, of early Zen teachers and Buddhist ancestors. 
So the ability to respond spontaneously in the moment, unpredictably yet somehow appropriately, Hirschach called improvisational virtuosity. And it obviously depended on the meeting of at least two beings, two Zen masters, a teacher and a student, a monk and an abbot, a scholar and an old woman selling rice cakes, even a traveling mendicant and a peach tree. In Chan, Buddhism became deeply relational and irreducibly social. It has always been so, of course, the disciples of the Buddha had monasteries and universities in India. The Buddha himself emphasized the importance of Sangha and spiritual friendship. And of course, in the Mahayana tradition, the Bodhisattva vows define our fundamental orientation toward the relief of suffering and liberation of beings. How Zen came to have the image of a solitary practice and spiritual quest is probably more a reflection of our individualistic, striving culture in the West than anything else. Still, we can all probably recall the relationships that have shaped who we are, not only spiritually, but in all ways. Our parents, brothers and sisters, friends, teachers, all of these relationships have been formational. We might say that who we are emerged through them, whether through positive, negative, or even neutral associations. Often it's some mix of these, but those are only the most obvious relationships. We can't even really speak of relationships, but only relating. And it is our relating that brings us into being. We are constantly relating with everything in our experience, not only people and pets, but trees, grass, walls, and tiles, as Dogen says. We are constantly relating with email, with search engines, with news feeds. We're relating with food, with physical sensations, with emotions and ideas that arise spontaneously and then disappear. We relate with others in language, in gestures, in facial expressions, in art, in sport, in texts. And always, always we are explaining, performing, and defending who we think we are, all the while we are being shaped by every encounter. You may have noticed that even in sitting meditation, in stillness and silence. Your mind is filled with relationships, reworking situations from the past, anticipating future encounters, and in the present moment, in intimate conversation with your body, mind, and heart. We have a constant voiceover narration going on, but who is that narration for? It is the constant relating with ourselves, and it is worth observing whether that relationship is abusive dismissive and uncaring, or curious, compassionate, and wise. We begin determining who we are through the earliest reflections we receive in our primary relationships. So when my son was a baby, I always dressed him up for going out because I wanted him to be surrounded by reflections of delight. From the beginning, we're developing our sense of our own okayness from these moments of intimate relating and reflection. Even now, in our most glancing moments of connection, a phone call to tech support, a neighbor passing on our morning walk, an email reply, we are expressing and defining ourselves in this very moment. 
Our Zen practice is about becoming aware of our present moment relating and its quality. We cannot, of course, control our circumstances. We are vulnerable to a dangerous virus that is easily transmitted. We are facing huge social and environmental issues that must be addressed. And we are subject to all the sources of suffering that Buddha named, birth, death, sickness, old age, being with what we do not love, having to be apart from what we do love, and not getting what we want. And every other living being is also subject to these forms of suffering. The issue is not whether or when we are in relation with another, it is how we shape the quality of relating, which is an ongoing dynamic process. It requires a good deal of self-awareness as well as awareness of others. So Zen is a practice for cultivating awareness in both directions. <clears throat> we simplify the conditions by stopping, sitting in stillness, and maintaining silence. We begin to recognize that there is no permanent me, that we're constantly in dynamic interaction with thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, constantly telling ourselves who we think we are, how we think we should be, how we are doing what we should think, do, or say. We replay past situations, rework conversations with people who are not there, plan for a future that cannot be predicted. As we get clearer and clearer about our conditioning, we're encouraged and supported by our relations with our spiritual friends and teachers. They are a necessary dimension of our spiritual path. So let's face it. Our spiritual journey has its ups and downs, and even times when it feels lost or invisible to us. Many people report that they have trouble making time to meditate. Our worldly life demands our attention constantly, and we tend to feel there is some separation between that life and our spiritual practice. This is, in Zen practice at least, simply not true. From the beginning, Zen has been a practice of ordinary daily life. Chop wood, carry water. If you've eaten your breakfast, wash your bowl. Our ongoing relating with everything in our lives is our Zen practice. But we forget, and we lose sight of our spiritual path at times. This is why spiritual friendships are so important. Teachers and spiritual friends enable our practice and foster it. Even the most casual encounter in this way helps connect us to our deepest aspirations and our spiritual path. Realizing this, we have made relating with each other one of the central practices here at Appamata. We use teachings, writing, interactive exercises, practice discussion groups, councils, and social events as practices. This offers many opportunities for practice in a safe container. We practice relating with each other to develop our capacity to relate skillfully, wisely, and compassionately with all other beings, beings who may be more challenging or difficult, beings who may not share our values and aspirations or this practice. If you are practicing with us and making good use of the teachings, your relationships with others should be growing more honest, trustworthy, curious, open, and wholesome. Without the need to defend a self, we are able to bring kindness and openness to every encounter. 
This does not mean simply being a doormat. Remember that our practice is the relief of suffering and liberation for all beings, not all beings minus one. But there's a funny shift that happens when you actually grasp the teaching of no self. Suddenly it doesn't matter who you think you are, what you think you need, what others think of you, what you should do, because there's no you to protect or explain or assert or promote. There's a great relief in that and an enormous release of energy. Our ways of relating become truly spontaneous, genuine, heartfelt, and caring. The self that needs something, that is wounded by something, that expects something, is simply gone. Surprisingly, this does not make us uncaring of others. It frees us to turn toward others with no agenda to fix or direct them, with no expectations or requirements of them, without any barrier at all to simply meeting. In meeting another, we are encountering another universe, and we are simply curious about that universe. Of course we are concerned when others are creating harm for themselves and for others. It is precisely in such situations that we need to be free of self-creation so that our inherent wisdom, compassion, and skillful means can naturally and spontaneously come forth. Zen precepts are the ethical foundations of such relating. They describe the gifts of relating in which we refrain from harming others and become trustworthy and reliable in relationships. Musong prefers the term relationality to describe an orientation toward or potential for or quality of relating. We humans are hardwired for relationality. Relating is a creative and expressive act as well as a receptive and responsive one. So we are called forth by relating. In some sense, we do not exist except through moments of connecting with a partner or a friend, with a pet, with a sunset or a houseplant. Every connection tells us who we are in each moment. Mu Song called this new sense of being a provisional floating center. It's not about being nobody, a nihilistic view of self, nor is it about being a better self. It is simply that who we are arises in the moment to meet the immediate circumstances or situation we find ourselves participating in. We practice to be well-resourced in every moment, to spontaneously come forth in our thoughts, words, and actions in alignment with our deepest aspiration and vow. As we continue to practice, we begin to notice more and more situations where we are able to relate in this way. There's no sticky residue from our encounters then, no lingering replays or regret or confusion. Intimacy with all things is how Dogen described enlightenment. Intimacy with a pandemic, intimacy with Zoom, intimacy with a corrupt administration, intimacy with a cup of tea, a cockroach, a swallow, a mountain, a friend, someone with views I dislike, someone who looks and talks different from me, someone who is just like me, getting old, getting sick, dying.
we can do this and we need each other to help us remember this is our path this is our intention this is our vow <clears throat> so I wanted to leave time for uh, breakout rooms so that we can have a little opportunity to connect with each other and uh, I'd like you to begin at least by describing one relationship that has had an influence on your own spiritual path. So each person should have about five minutes. Partners, please listen and protect that time without any conversation or crosstalk. Then after the, that, there will be plenty of time for general discussion. We'll have um, 30 minutes. So, uh, so Sandra, if you want to... Yeah, I was really inspired hearing the stories of... Mm. Uh, from our my partners. Definitely interesting. There's so many different directions that one can go in when we are contemplating that relationship and spiritual life, and just it's really uh, endless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People made some inspired choices in my group. I don't know about you guys. Medi, were you about to say something? Yes, I had a very nice talk and connection with Claudine, who lives in Switzerland. And mm -hmm. it was <laughs> such a nice uh, opportunity for me to get to know her and uh, somewhat curious about her background because of my interest in history and all the events that happened during the World War II in Central Europe and then her, partly her, uh, you know, the effect indirectly on, on the family of her, Claudine. Mm. The teacher and, uh, and then your email uh, pick, you know, the one from Hemingway mm, uh -huh. had been so, so inspiring and influential in, in to her and to me as well. Mm. I replied and I to told her what I wrote back, you know, as my response. And uh, no, it was a very nice, uh, you know, connection and, uh, you know, learning from each other. And she's very impressed with the Apamada. I mean, my take <laughs> is that she's very happy with, you know, more contemporary type of a Zen ah. and the contacts with Flint. And I told her about my own experience, which, you know, I, I, I welcome it wholeheartedly because I have been interested in this type of, you know, path. And mm -hmm. I'm still struggling with mindfulness and, and, and that's what she is. <laughs> so, has attended retreats in England, and uh, anyway, it was very inspiring. And it was very great. Yeah. I like it. Well, as maybe mentioned, your mail about Hemingway, it was so inspiring to me. Hmm. The ideas that my ancient wars. <laughs> with my mom or whoever, whoever, uh, well, they, they did exist and they influenced me maybe, but I'm not obliged to go to, 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 to war tomorrow morning. I'm <laughs> surprised 
I can say, okay, I feel sometimes something difficult or I suffer sometimes because of it, but it's over. I have the choice. <laughs> and a group of women tonight, I'm part of um, Women Within International. It's a group of women, mm. women. And I am going to use, if you agree, I'm going to use this sentence to be the basis of our um, sharing tonight. Of course. Yeah. Thank mm -hmm. you very much, Greg. Yeah. Anything that's sent out like that, you can use however you wish. Just, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's basically public then, so use, yes. use whatever, whatever serves you. <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was, oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought it was, um, I mean, when you said pick somebody influ influential, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, who do I pick? You know, because along the line, there's been that many people that have been a part of different stages and different levels. And, and right. But I think what was interesting for me was that my teachers came up, like Trudy Johnston, Flynn, yourself, and, the, you know, there, there was, people that came up but I think what has always been part of the practice from a child onwards and continues to be is the relationships that trigger me mm -hmm. that are difficult and <clears throat> and almost act like a barometer mm -hmm. to see you know each time you meet them it's how far have I come how different is this <laughs> and you know how can I do this differently and yeah so I think, yeah, the relationship, I mean, Trudy Johnston always says to me, you know, if someone pushes your button, say thank you very much, because it's a gift, <laughs> an offering, it's a learning. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Joker used to say, everybody asks me how to find a good Zen teacher. And I always tell them, just look around for the person who annoys you the most. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes these people become our worthy adversaries, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. They illuminate things for us. Mm -hmm. yeah, and through the practice, as they trigger us, and we begin to move further through the practice, the yeah. more we can kind of see and have compassion and understand and open space for them in that yeah. relationship. Whereas before, we're just consumed with the triggering and the vibrations of what that causes. And what you're talking about is the shift from contracting against something to opening and expanding to include it, which is very, very challenging. You know, like, um, like one Zen teacher said, you have no idea how long it takes to love some people. It is true. I feel like Donald Trump is the ultimate challenge he, donald trump is a great buddha he has brought forth more goodness yes. in the world than anyone else. Yes. yes yeah yeah he's evoked more action on behalf of the good than anybody i know of that's very true that's very true it's in an unfortunate way yeah. <laughs> but you know he's not skillful but he is effective so, yeah well, I think we, ha we need to stop and um, have service. Um, but is there one last, was there one last question? One last, Dawn? Well, I just want to um, say we were, we talked a lot about walls in, in our group. And um, Ed mentioned um, 
at one point that just saying the word help can take you from a stuck place to the first step. And um, I didn't mention this in our group, but um, when, when you said that, Ed, it felt to me like seeking help or opening up to help is a step to opening up to change. And I, I, I sensed that when, when you said that, that I'm stuck at my wall because I haven't been open to, to changing. And I really hadn't realized that until that moment. So a good realization. Mm. Something very short uh, that I want to mention in our group uh, is this guy said that we don't have enough verbs. Uh, this guy meaning uh, Jess, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, he said, we don't have enough verbs, like, you know, trees are treeing. And I just wanted to leave you all with that because <laughs> Nate said that that's a good week, good topic for medica meditation for the next week. And so I thought it was. <laughs> there is a Native American language that doesn't have any nouns. Everything is always process and verbs. Mm. So think about what that would be like. Yeah. You know? so. Apple eating would be a, a verb, right? <laughs> Which one? I think. Yeah. So, all right. Let's, uh, let's do service for now. And, um, and I hope you have a wonderful week. <laughs>